0: Please turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We're finishing up chapter 11 today. We have been in this section before. Uh, We've already looked at it once and then we skip back for communion message into the earlier section. Now we're taking a second run at this. And I'm not going to read it because we have already read it. Section starts in verse 37 and goes to the end of the chapter. And as we think about the Lord Jesus and this confrontation over the dinner table um, that was made and the severe things that Jesus said. Now, by the way, as severe as they were, it was not as severe as Matthew 23. I mean, it was the dinner table. (laughs) So he said a lot more severe things in Matthew 23 than he says here. But he is incarnate wisdom dealing with intransigent foolishness. He is the incarnate Messiah. He is the incarnate God. And for him not to confront that which was hurting the theocratic nation and the world when he had opportunity to do it would not be responsible on his part. This is not an example of how we should act at the dinner table. Uh, usually. <laughs> there might be exceptions to this. But he, as God, he has some rights that we don't have. And he went after these people very, very strongly. And as we mentioned before, there's a history behind it. And that was, we got into that a couple of messages ago. Um, But I want us to take a good look at the Lord. And then I want to take a good look at the Pharisees and the lawyers and deal with that today. That's where we're going. And we always need a, a good look at the Lord and just remind ourselves how wonderful and what a perfect person he is as God incarnate, the sinless Son of God. And it's always good for us to look at the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians when we see them in the Bible. God had providential purposes that they would be what they were at that time when Jesus encountered them. Because remember, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He said it to God's people. Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. Beware of the leaven of the Herodians. He said it at different times. Because fallen people don't change. And even believers sometimes have some Phariseeism in them. Or Sadduceeism. It may not be full blown or Herodianism. We need to know what these groups were. We need to know why they're in the Gospels and why these things are here because either we or those we love may have temptations along these lines. And so if we're going to minister to people, we need to understand how to do that and what the dangers are. They're perpetual dangers till Jesus comes. So let's look at the Lord first and just keep our eyes on the Good Shepherd And something we've already mentioned is the Lord Jesus did not just expose lies. He confronted the liars. Now there's all kinds of people that can write books against lies. It's one thing to write a book against lies. It's another thing to confront the liars to their face. And Jesus is... The way, the truth, and the life. He is incarnate truth. And he cannot let lies pass. The lies we tell ourselves, the lies we believe that others tell us, he is the exposure of lies. And he totally dominates the table conversation here. He's very, very bold. He exposes uh, these folks' legalistic distortion of Old Testament faith. Of Abraham and David. Don't you ever think Abraham and David were like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. That Old Testament faith was rooted in the promise and focused on the promise. Somewhere these folks got focused on the law instead of the promise. From one that They didn't believe the promise, but they got the spotlight on the law. The Old Testament spotlight is on the promise and the law is to drive us to that promise and the one that's promised. And that's how Paul does it in Galatians. And we last time we were in this section we saw, we saw very many bold confrontations around a dinner table. Some of the most striking things that happen in the Bible happen around a dinner table. And we saw several of them and this was just one of many but probably one of the most tense. And as we mentioned probably nobody ate much at that. Dinner. This was too intense. Just sit there and eat <laughs> while this is going on. And at the first century, the cultural elites that were over the culture of the country and had the most influence on the people were the Pharisees. Not the Sadducees. Nobody liked them. They were not popular with the people of the land. Not the not the Herodians. The Sadducees and Herodians were seen by the people as being in the pocket of Rome. So they had they had power. They had positions of power, but they were not popular. the The Pharisees were the cultural high priest, if I can put it that way. They were setting the pace. Most people didn't want to be a Pharisee. They saw through some of their nastiness, but they respected them. And they uh, allowed them to be the cultural elites that were kind of setting the, the culture's ways of thinking and doing. And the scribes and the lawyers are the ones that taught the Pharisees. So Jesus here is confronting the students, that's the Pharisees, and confronting the teachers of the students. And that's why the one lawyer stood up and said, When you say this about them, you're reproaching us too, because they're harsh students. And then Jesus opened up on them. And so, that's what's going on here. And uh, the first century culture was dominated by this legalistic spirit. It was very hard to get out from under it. Much like American culture is influenced by Hollywood. The music and movie industry. Young people are find that peer pressure to believe what they believe and act like they act very strong and even older people, we unconsciously absorb it. In fact our country exports it. And those that are in the know uh, will say if you don't go along with it, you don't get the part in the movie and you don't your music doesn't sell and you know they're not going to promote it. So you've got to conform if you're going to be in the in crowd. And unfortunately, it's not very good stuff in many cases. In the church of Jesus Christ, we are also subject to influences by the evil one, the leaven that can come into a church from the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians. Back in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, there was a real battle in this country. It was against Sadducees. Liberal modernism. It came in from Germany. They lost the battle in Germany. It came imported to the United States. And in the 1940s and 50s, a whole section of Fundamentalism made a distinct decision not to confront the leaven of the Sadducees. They gave up having a warning ministry. We've never recovered from that. We've never recovered from it. But there was an individual I'm going to mention that in the 20s and 30s did stand up to it. You've heard me mention him before. There's issues of his theology I would differ with. He, he, was, he was a Presbyterian at Princeton, Uni, Princeton Seminary. Excuse me, not University, but Princeton Seminary. A New Testament professor, and you know his name, James Grisham Machen. And he stood up. He was from a very genteel well-connected family in the east, eastern United States. A Christian family. But he stood up and he got ripped for it. People, people hated him. People misrepresented him. I've got to read two things about Machen in this little biography I'm reading, and I've read bigger biographies, but this one's been quite interesting to me. Uh, Machen did not abdicate. He stood up, but he had a bad reputation because of it, and it cost him. And here's what his biographer said. Controversy carries with elements of danger. The one who takes his stand against error is sure to be accused of being a bitter man. I it's too strict. separate. In fact, that had a reputation before I got here. Oh, the church did. But Machen got that label. And the biographer said, Machen was no exception. It's arresting, therefore, to listen to the tribute, according to him, by Dr. J.B. Green, president of Columbia Theological Seminary, following Machen's series of lectures at that institution. So somebody invited him to lecture, and the president is thinking, oh, wow, what have we got here? This is going to be World War III. And this is what President J.B. Green said after meeting Machen rather than just hearing about him. From what we had read and heard about Dr. Machen, we expected to find him a hot and harsh controversialist. That's what they expected. (laughs) But then he said, after Machen was there, he is positive and unyielding in his convictions... Yet he knows the difference between abuse and argument. Between ridicule and reason. We were greatly pleased with his gentleness of spirit and courtesy of warmth. His whole attitude was that of a Christian doing service to the truth as he saw it. You see, Machen was simply fulfilling his coordination vows, by taking the stand he did. His church changed, not him. And that was, There was a side of Machen people didn't know because they just heard about him and he took a strong stand and they didn't understand. Now he did take a strong stand. Let me read from that Machen himself. Uh, on, in a sermon, The Good Fight of Faith, Machen said this, The true instruments which God uses in great triumphs of faith are no pacifists, but great fighters like Paul himself. Little affinity for the great apostle has the whole tribe of considerers of consequences, the whole tribe of compromisers, ancient and modern. The real companions of Paul are the great heroes of faith. But who are these heroes? Are they not the true fighters? One and all. And then he goes to church history. Some of you will recognize some of these men and the men they were fighting. Tertullian fought a mighty battle against Marcion. Athanasius fought against the Arians. Augustine fought against the Pelagians. And as for Luther, he fought a brave battle against the kings and princes and popes for the liberty of the people of God. Luther was a great fighter and we love him for it so was Calvin, so was John Knox, and all the rest. It's impossible to be a true soldier of Jesus Christ and not fight. Now, put those two things together. The statement Machen himself made, and the statement that was made about him. Can you be a fighter and yet speak the truth in love? I hope so, because I believe that's what the Bible requires of us. So I don't, I don't, when I see the Lord Jesus here at this table, saying the things that he's saying, sharp things, harsh things, true things, he's like a doctor. Probing for the wound so he can deal with it. Love is behind it. And love for the truth and love for those who were in these groups. So I believe the Lord was a fighter. He didn't come down here to not fight, He came down here to do battle with the devil himself. He came down here. To rescue us on a rescue mission. No Navy SEAL had a more dangerous assignment than Jesus had. It was going to cost him his life and he knew it. And he was willing to pay that price. And he knew he'd be hated for it. He knew he'd be rejected for it. He knew he'd be crucified for it. But he did it. And when he's sitting at the table with these people, I don't see, I see in the Lord that, that gentleness and courtesy of warmth and love as he says these words. And that word woe, it's more like, alas, so sad for you. So sad for you, alas, for you, that you are this. But boy, are those words bold. He's poking the grizzly bear. And he knows it. And when this was all over, they weren't just passively aggressive anymore. They were actively planning his death. And our Lord knows what He's doing. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's not going to let the wolves win. And I'm reminded of what Proverbs says Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yeah, they were upset. But they need to do. So, as we, what's another verse say in the Bible? Let the righteous smite me, it's kindness. A.T. Robertson said, Men do not know how rotten they are. Well, if you hang out with Jesus, you'll find out. You you read the Scriptures, you read the Gospels, you read the Epistles, you'll find out, because He'll point it out to you by His Spirit. And Darrell Bock said of Jesus, He had no hidden agenda and did not engage in behind-the-scenes criticism of the Pharisees, Unlike his opposition, who who tr- talked behind his back and plotted secretly his demise, Jesus was honest about where he stood and where they stood, and he gave them numerous opportunities to change. What a wonderful thing. Is it possible for a Sarah Pharisee to change? I hope so. Nicodemus proves it can happen by God's grace. So does Paul. They were both Pharisees. So when you met a pe- person of that stripe, uh, it, it, it's possible. But we have to be bold. Lovingly bold. I, I, I'm almost ready to get going here on this next one. We'll start bringing in Scripture. I, Along with Pastor Oswald, I, I was assistant pastor to another pastor, Pastor Carl Petters, and Pastor Carl Petters was a kind, gentle, meek man. He worked carpentry work on the side. He, he could do man's work, but he was, was about this high. He wasn't too big, a man. And I remember one time, we had, he took me with him, and we had to confront somebody about something. And I don't even remember what the something was. He was kind of a big guy. And he didn't like us confronting him. He told us to get out and not to come back. But it was one of those situations where you couldn't just ignore it. So we had dealt with it. He didn't like it. But we knew it wasn't over. And then I heard something coming out of the mouth of Pastor Carl Petters. After this guy told us to get out and don't come back, he said, We're like bad pennies. We'll be back. And I thought, "Did that come out of him?" <laughs> and so the Lord Jesus knows that he's going to get heat, but it's love that's confronting people who don't want to be exposed to themselves about themselves. and that's how he loves you, and that's how he loves me, and that's why he does put his finger on some place that hurts. Just like the doctor when they exam, you know, they start feeling your stomach and they're, they're, they're probing for something. Does that hurt? Does that? No, that doesn't hurt. Oh, <laughs> so the Lord is ministering to us so that he can uh, help us. And that's what he's doing. Now, let's bring that that brings us to the Pharisees and lawyers and the and uh, let's uh, work on them just a little bit. Now let's read our text. Or let's read what Jesus said. Verse 37. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward parts full of extortion and wickedness. You fools! Call them fools to their face. You read that in the context of Proverbs. Jesus didn't often use that term, he used it right there. Did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Or rather, give alms of such things as you have. And behold, all things are clean to you. By the way, you'll find out in chapter 12, uh, they love money. So you've got to get your heart to where you're a giver and not a not a, a coveter. Give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees. There are several woes here. Alas for you, so sad for you. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over justice and love of God. You pass over justice. You're not interested in that, doing the right thing. And you're not interested in loving God. You're putting on a show. You love money. You love praise. You love recognition. But you don't love God. Now, if you try to tell a religious person they don't love God, you're asking for a fight. That's exactly what he did. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love as chief seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which appear not that men walk over them and are not aware of them. Now, one thing we don't want to be is a Pharisee. One thing we don't want to degenerate into, even for a moment, is Pharisaical. It's obvious that that's not a good thing. It's something we don't want to be. In fact, we want to be the polar opposite of that. Whatever that is, and we're going to look at that, we want to be 180 degrees different than that. Everybody following me? So Jesus is it's no good for us just to talk about them 2,000 years ago. We need to say, all right, they're in the Bible for a reason. This is in the Bible for a reason. This is what God doesn't want me to be. Doesn't want our church to be. Any shred of Phariseeism needs to be repented of and dealt with and gone. Or Sadduceeism or Herodianism, but that's not our subject today. So let's uh, let's look at them. What can we say about them from this text? We'll get to the lawyers next. What are the identifying marks of a Pharisee? Not just two thousand years ago, but even today. Um, False Christianity and false religion and false teachers are all the same. And so what we see here, we see today, and we see it all around us. Number one, emphasis on externals rather than internals. That's verses 39 to 41. You're busy cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside is left dirty. Anytime a church is overoccupied with externals, whatever they are, rather than internals, they're slipping into Phariseeism. Now, does that mean externals need to be totally overlooked? No. But when you emphasize the externals to the exclusion of Internal dealing, that's no good. The heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. You've got to be dealing with the heart all the time. Second, an emphasis on minor minors and not on majors. When, the pre- when things are out of balance, there's an inverted emphasis. Externals versus internals and minors versus majors. That those are two big things. That- Jesus is saying here. You're neglecting the internals. You're emphasizing the externals. Tithing mint, rue, and cumin is relatively easy, right? Just cut a little that off. Make sure I give everything of everything in my garden. I've got to cut 10% off to give and make sure I get that done. That's relatively easy. On the internals, it's impossible except for salvation. Why do people emphasize externals versus internals or get you know, all excited about minors versus majors? Because they're unsaved. They can't do the majors. They can't love God. They can't be clean on the inside. So unbelief is always blind and 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 it always is associated with things that are of trivial importance. They have zeal on trivialities. On things that are not important. That is very important. If you concentrate on the trivial, you're going to overlook something that's vital. And so their, their eyes are on the trivial. Trivial. That's pretty clear about what Jesus is saying here. Third, prominence and public recognition versus humble service. They loved the greetings in the marketplace. They loved the chief seats. They loved to be called rabbi. They loved all that stuff. That was so important to them. Reputation for piety was more important than piety. This kind of stuff, however and whenever it appears, is dead religion. And it defiles those who are in it, and it defiles those who are associated with it. That's why Jesus said, you're like graves. People are walking over you, and they're defiled, and they don't know it. Now what is that talking about? In the Old Testament time, this was legitimate, the whole nation was involved in a great pageant of redemption. And you had to be ceremonially clean to worship in the temple. And if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean. Nothing sinful about it. You just became ceremonially unclean and therefore unfit to engage in a pageantry of offering the sacrifices. And what Jesus is saying here. You people are defiling the whole nation. You think you're protecting. They don't know it. Because they're following you, they are not fit for worship. That's a strong statement. Um, Have you ever... Say, I'm dumber by having just listened to what you had to say. <laughs> what Jesus is saying here is, people are walking over your dead graves. Like they would always mark the graves with white, as many of us know. So people wouldn't step on one accidentally when they're coming to Jerusalem. And then, i got a quarantine for seven days and I can't worship. So they'd make sure all the graves were painted white. Well, you're like unmarked graves. And people don't know it, but you're hurting them, their, their worship. Because legalism is a leaven, and a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. That's what Paul told the Galatians, who were being infiltrated by legalism and the Pharisee leaven. Remember Paul said to the Galatians, you're running well, who did hinder you, cutting on you, that you should not obey the truth. So, Merle 10, he said, by your example, you cause other men to break the law and defile themselves. Now, this is very severe. Jesus is very severe. I'm not sure we should be as severe with somebody as Jesus is here. I'm not sure we're capable of loving people enough to be that severe. But, But there are times when we might have to be. And maybe they'll never speak to us again. If we're that way. But maybe that's what needs to happen. We don't always have to keep good relations with everybody. Sometimes love will say, this is going to hurt you and it's going to hurt me more because I won't be able to. I know you're going to be mad at me and you'll probably never get over it. But on the judgment day, we'll be glad we said something. And hopefully even before that, it'll make them think. So our Lord is committed to deal with this. He's committed to challenging people who claim to represent God to the nation. And as Daryl Bach said, such leadership is destructive, so Jesus pulls no punches in condemning it. It's not love to let cancer go when you can deal with it. The loving thing for the doctor says, you got cancer, you need surgery, and you need it right away. Darrell Bach, who, who mentions this comment, also mentioned this. I've been in groups that could have been cousins to the Pharisees. They're a box alive today. I've been in groups that could have been cousins to the Pharisees. So this is a very practical section of Scripture. These folks were totally ignoring what really mattered to God. They had their own religion and their own things that became important and God's things and God's standards and what God was really after was not important. And the prophets said the same kind of thing in the Old Testament over and over again. R.T. France said these were scorching words of Jesus, and the worst of the matter was that they were absolutely true, and every Pharisee at the table realized they were true. And even the lawyer that spoke up couldn't defend them. He just said, You're reproaching us also. But he never said, Hey, you're wrong about them. They're really different, what you're saying. You, got, you, you, you didn't size this up right now. He said, You're reproaching us, the lawyers too. Because the lawyers were their teachers. So the Lord Jesus does not see the Pharisees as allies against the Sadducees or Herodians or Romans. He says, you are hurting people. And I'm the good shepherd and you're not going to get away with it. Now... um, Who are the Pharisees? Who are these people? I know we know the terms, we've read them all our lives, but just a quick thing. Pharisees started a couple hundred years before the New Testament was written. Uh, Pharisee means separated ones, and they had degenerated from their beginning to where they were. And uh, they were legalists to the core by this time and most of them weren't saved that's why Jesus called them fools you're not wise to salvation as uh, 2 Timothy 3.15 says they didn't love God but they loved their reputation for piety and they loved preeminence as Diotrephes did they loved that And they were uns- they were upset that Jesus ate with unwashed hands. By the way, the word washed there is baptized. It's not dealing with hygiene you didn't use enough soap it's dealing with they actually had certain ceremonies of how to do that. You had to do it exactly right with the right hand first and the left hand and all that and you had to up to the wrist and all kinds of stuff. They had details on what you would do. And that was very big with them. Very, very big with them. And so they were upset that Jesus was eating with unbaptized hands. And as we said before, he did that on purpose because there was a longstanding issue here that was behind all this. But they had unbaptized hearts. And he was not going to let it go. Your doctor says you got a bad heart. You're going to start listening, aren't you? And you're 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 dirty on the inside. So I believe this was all said in love, and it was needed. I I my dear mom's in heaven now, and she was such a, she was very strict with me, and I got an awful lot of paddles, and I needed a lot more. But you know, once a mom, always a mom. And I. Remember, we were at Myrtle Beach, I think it was Myrtle Beach one time, and we go to a restaurant and I sit down and uh, I, I, they offered me to pray sometimes my dad would pray and, and I took my hat off to pray, but then I put it back on my head at the dinner table. Anybody know mothers from that era <laughs> she She mouthed these words very she didn't say. It, just, So she wasn't trying to embarrass me. She just was saying, "You just, you just, you just committed a very serious social faux pas." I am not going to let it go. It's the love of the Lord that's confronting these folks here. The Pharisees needed this, and Jesus would do this one-on-one with Nicodemus to his benefit, and He would also do it one-on-one with Paul to His benefit. Well, who are these scribes? These scribes, these mentioned here in verse 44, scribes and Pharisees. That's the exact group that he attacks in uh, Matthew 23. Scribes and Pharisees is repeated multiple times down through that chapter. Uh, The scribes were scholars, teachers of the law, And they were members of the learned class. And they spent their lives studying, copying, and teaching the Bible. Um, And their official interpretation of the meaning of the commandments that they came up with through their study was eventually considered more important. Than the law itself. In other words. The average person knew what they said. But not what the Bible said. So they knew their interpretation of the Bible. But they didn't know the Bible itself. Some of them were priests. Others came from other classes. You didn't have to be a priest to be a scribe. The center for that was Jerusalem, of course. And uh, very close to them was these lawyers that we're going to look at, nomikos. They were learned in the law. And their intent was to give the people an adequate interpretation and application of the divine law to every situation of life. And they produced a vast body of explanation and commentary and application, underline this, which was held to be just as binding as the actual writings of Moses. So what happens under people like that, the scribes and the lawyers? People know what they say about the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. Are you with me on that? I had a lot of Roman Catholic friends in high school. Some of them I still have as friends. But I can't tell you one that knew the Bible. A lot of them knew what the church said. And a lot of it was mixing in what? Church tradition in the Bible. The church fathers in the Bible. And they were confused which is which. Because the emphasis was so high on what this church father said or this church father said and so forth. Cultists have the same problem, don't they? The average cultist, anybody that's ever dealt with cults, and Linda would know that better than any of us here, and Larry certainly knew it. What the Bible says is buried in the cult's interpretation of the Bible. the new books that they come out with, and this and that. The Bible can't speak for itself because it's buried in this other stuff. This is Satan's Mode of operation often. The Pharisees were known for insisting that the law of God be as the scribes and lawyers interpreted it, and for keeping the commandments on tithing, Sabbath, and observance and ritual purity. That was the big thing for them. So the Pharisees popularized what the scribes and lawyers taught them. And then you got the church, church priests, and we're going to see them later. They held priestly office of higher rank in the temple along with the high priest, and they had administrative duties in the temple, and the Sadducees and the Rodians were not going to get to them. So the Pharisees were the cultural elites, the gatekeepers, who sought to apply what others taught, what others taught. So the Pharisees were the useful idiots, for the lawyers and the scribes, popularizing and promoting what they taught. They parroted their legalistic propaganda. And that was basically it. Something else, just something the Pharisees wanted to make Levitical purity something that went national, not just for the Levites in the temple. The whole nation has to be a nation of priests, Exodus uh, Exodus 19.6. And they wanted to... See, they always want to be stricter than God on that kind of stuff. So they tried to apply Levitical purity and the food laws and everything to the whole nation. And their idea was the way to keep people from breaking the Ten Commandments is to put a fence around the law. And that fence was made out of all their applications of the law, multiple applications. So if you don't do these little things, you won't do the big one. What's the problem with that? That's Eve's method. Eve did that in the Garden of Eden. Uh, We can't eat of the tree and we can't even touch it. God never said you can't touch it. But Eve put a fence around it in her mind. Well, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not even going to touch it. So she was stricter than God. And it didn't help her a bit. In fact, it helped the tempter to tempt her to think hard things about God. They did the same thing here. And what a sad business it is. And now we go down to the the lawyer's. In verse 46, Woe to you also, lawyers, you load men with burdens grievous to be borne, and you yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Sounds like Congress. They pass laws for us, but not for themselves. They got loopholes. Woe to you that build the sepulchers of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them and build their sepulchers. We got people tearing down statues. The thing was going on there was building them. And it's present tense. They were in, they built prop every if you were a prophet, you were a dead prophet, you got a sepulchre, boy. They put them up everywhere. And they kept building them and enlarging them, and everything is great. But Jesus says, Look, your fathers killed them, and you built the sepulchres for the people your fathers killed. So you know that your fathers killed them. And you never broke with that. You you honored the prophets when they were dead. But you never stood up to your ancestors and what they did. So you're in agreement with them. You like dead prophets better than living ones. Dead saints are always easier to love than living ones, aren't they? So that's the... Whole business. These folks had total lack of self awareness. Luke eighteen, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And here they didn't Jesus just put put his finger right on it. And he said in verse forty nine, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I'll send them prophets, I will send them. Future tense. This is talking about New Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles in the book of Acts. And some of them you'll slay and persecute. You haven't changed. You're just the same as your fathers. They killed the Old Testament prophets. You'll kill the New Testament ones. They persecuted the Old Testament people I sent. You're going to persecute the New Testament ones. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, that starts with Cain killing Abel, may be required this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the last guy killed in the Old Testament. Who perished between the altar and temple. Verily I say it will be required of this generation. What does that mean? It means, this is very serious. We should learn from our history. That's what it means. And if we don't learn by our history. If we know about bad things that happen in history, we are expected to learn to not follow those things. That's what he means. Were there bad things in the United States history? Yeah. Not exactly like Black Lives Matter says or CRT says, but there were bad things. Does that mean stay away from history? No. Does that mean don't teach the bad things that happen? No. No. Obviously not. We need to learn from the bad things in history. That's why we need to know history. All the good, bad, and the ugly. We don't avoid teaching it. Neither do we distort it for political purposes as cultural Marxism does. This is a precious thing. People are responsible to learn from the history they have. We are so mixed up today. It's just, a, we, got, we got a party in our country saying they're anti-slavery, but pro-abortion. Is slavery bad? Yes. Is abortion bad? Yes. But we are pro-abortion, but we're anti-slavery. Do you understand how mixed up that is? We have, we have people that say think think that way and think that that's somehow legitimate. And <coughs> why are people pro-abortion? We have to have the sexual revolution. We have to keep that going. We can't just have sex in marriage. We got to break down the family. So we have to have the sexual revolution. Why do you have to have the sexual revolution? Be- so you can have the cultural revolution that brings in cultural Marxism. That's why people get into inconsistent thinking, just beyond bizarre. But the point is this: God expects us to be resp- to be responsible for history and the bad things that happen as well as the good things. We need to know about the good things, the people that stood up against it and died and suffered, and the people who were against them and made them suffer. We need to know that. And so that generation was held responsible for every martyrdom they didn't learn from. And 70 A.D. is when that payment was made. When the Romans came in. Now verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers! For you've taken away the key of knowledge. You've taken it away. And you entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering you hindered. Now when you take away the key of something that's locked, people can't utilize what is locked. They took away the key of knowledge of salvation with their legalism. And all they knew is what the lawyers and scribes told them and and what this rabbi or that rabbi taught. They didn't know the Bible. And they took away the key of knowledge from the people, because the people knew what they told them. And you entered not in yourselves, which means you're not saved. And them that were entering, you hindered. Somebody started thinking right. You corrected them. You can see that in John, the Gospel of John. C.S. Lewis said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst and most dangerous. What's the applications to this? Number one, how careful we should be on who teaches us the Galatians weren't so careful the Colossians weren't so careful the Corinthians weren't so careful sometimes that teaching comes within the church or outside the church maybe the culture is teaching something and that trumps everything else how careful we should be on who teaches us. Number two. How careful we should be to let God's Word and God's Spirit work in our lives from the inside out. I love commentaries. You know that. All you've got to do is look in my messy office and you'll see it. But I have to get along with God in the Bible and let God deal with my heart and let God give me his message not from man thank God for good teachers and I'm happy for that but get it from God very important how careful we should be to let God's word and God's spirit come Uh, the Pharisees and lawyers would never describe themselves the way Jesus described them but he was right And they needed to hear it. I don't think the churches of Revelation would have described themselves the way Jesus described them either. So we need to let the Lord and His Spirit do that work. Number three and last, we want to be the polar opposite of these people. Whatever they were, whatever they are, we don't want to be that. And you know how it starts? the new birth how does the new birth start we're born again through the word not Pastor Hickson's words not some commentators words usually God's word God speaking God can speak through me he can speak through a commentator but most often just speaks right from his word and we want to be polar opposites of of that, It starts with being born again, but it ends with being connected with the doctrines of grace. It ends with being connected with the Word of God and the gospel of salvation. And turn with me and I'll close to the book of Galatians. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 6. You know what was behind all this business in the Galatian churches? Well, you find out in Acts 15, it started with some of the group of the Pharisees who believed. It started in Acts 15 with people who were Pharisees in background who got saved, who didn't get all the Phariseeism cleaned out of them. And they said, you got circumcised them. And command them to keep the law of Moses. No doubt they had some of it out of them, but they didn't have it all out of them. And they, that was the background. People who had not had their minds and hearts cleansed by the Word and their worldview and their theology reworked. And all the things that were before their salvation washed out. It's very easy to be inconsistent like that. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. What did Paul say to the Galatians? I'm afraid of you, that I've labored with you in vain. And he was very, very strong in his criticism of all this. And he mentions the teachers that were deceiving them. And he says in verse 11, You see how large a letter I've written unto you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they, that's the people who are turning them to legalism, constrain you to be circumcised, they should suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. So what were they? Were they more Pharisees than Christian or more Christian than Pharisees? seems like the Pharisee was getting the upper end there. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire you to be circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. Oh, we got a bunch of Gentile converts. We're good Jews and we're law keepers and everything. And that was it. I like what Larry Pyle, who's now in heaven, wrote on this in his book on Galatians. In verse 14 and 15, now Paul expresses his contrasting motivation for traveling about and making converts. Paul didn't do that to make a name for himself. Notice verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. I'm not glorying in my churches i started. I'm not glorying in my converts. I'm not glorying in that. I'm glorying in the Lord who died for me. And changed me. That in Christ Jesus, circumcision avails anything or circumcision but a new creature. It's a fascinating verse, verse 14. Whether you got the wrong theological position on circumcision or the right one, you can still be in trouble if you're not a new creature. Whether you agree with me or you don't agree with me is not the real issue. Are you a new creature? That's inside out religion. That's real Christianity. Now we won't be perfect. We won't be sinless. We we'll still we're still a work in progress. But it's got to start from the inside out, not just on the surface of our life. So stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made you free. Be not un, be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Father, we thank you for what we've looked at today. The things we've said are. We know, on one level, we, not something really new here. But Father, we know that we need to guard ourselves in these matters, lest, unbeknownst to us, we slip into areas that we shouldn't be in, uh, making ourselves look important, making ourselves look uh, knowledgeable. Even having a reputation for having a strong stand on moral issues or other things. Keep us, Father, to just exalt the Lord and not ourself. Help us, Father, to put self in the background. Self is is changed by your new birth and being changed by your spirit and be full of the spirit. That we not do the works of the flesh, focused on our Lord and not on ourselves, focused on the gospel and the saving of others, not our own reputation. And the godly men, I'm thinking of Wesley and Whitfield, and quotes I've read, they didn't care if anybody remembered them. They just wanted the gospel to go out and people to be saved and the work to be done. So that may that be the hard attitude of this church. It may be the hard attitude of each of us here. And forgive us, Father, where even the saved people are fallen nature. gets the best of us sometimes. We pray, Father, you to wash more of that out of us as time goes on. In Jesus' name, amen.